0: This Timothy. Have you ever wondered how people did apologetics in the ancient church, or if they did apologetics at all? Well in this episode, Garrick and I look at the apologetics of the ancient church with our friends Stephen Presley and Josh Chatro. Along the way we look at Irenaeus's Pumpkins, at St. Augustine's Pears, and at Josh Chatro's recent book,
1: Telling a Better Story. If you're interested in other works by Josh Chatro, we recommend two more of his books, Truth Matters and Truth in a Culture of Doubt from B&H Academic. That's Truth Matters and Truth in a
0: Culture of Doubt, published by our friends at B&H Academic. To take a look at these and many other excellent books, go to bhacademic.com. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, The Apologetics Podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. In each episode of this podcast, my friend Garrick Bailey and I tackle a topic that makes it difficult to trust the truth of the Christian faith. Along the way, we talk about music, movies, theology, and culture. To support this podcast and to receive Three Chords and the Truth merchandise, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Thank you so much for joining us today on Three Chords and the Truth, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. I am here today with Dr. Stephen Presley to talk about apologetics in the early church. Dr. Presley is a professor of church history at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He specializes in patristics with an interest in the intersection between history, theology, and the exegesis of the early church. He completed his undergraduate work at Baylor University and did a THM in historical theology from Dallas Theological Seminary, and then received a PhD from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And now, before we talk about apologetics, which is very important, and the apologetics of Irenaeus in the second century, which is very important. There is a question that we must ask that is at least as important as any of those questions, and that question is one that we ask every guest, and it is, if you could be anyone in the history of rock and roll, part of any band in the history of rock and roll, what would it be, what band would it be, and what would you be doing in that particular band?
2: Thank you very much for having me. Really glad to be here. Excited to be at Southern. Excited to be here teaching. If I could be part of any band— it would have to be you two, and since I can't play an instrument, just put me on stage and let me play a cymbal or something, a triangle, <laughs> and just stand there and enjoy the concert.
0: It could be like in a church band. Sometimes you have somebody that needs to be up there, and you hand them a tambourine and just run around with a tambourine.
2: Yeah, that's it. That's it. Just stand there. Just stand there. That would be me. Absolutely. Uh,
0: I saw you two on there. Joshua Tree the, Tour, the kind of the— redo of the Joshua Tree Tour that they did recently, and it really is one of the most incredible concert experiences I have ever had in my life. It really was. Just yeah, the, I can
2: remember seeing wow. them in, uh, in Dallas when I was doing my THM at Dallas Seminary, and they ended the tour singing 40, Psalm 40, of course. It was, a, it was an incredible experience.
3: Wait patiently for the Lord, incline my cry. Lift me up out of the pit, out of the
1: Murray clay.
0: There is a sense in which you 2 achieves something very close to worship, not of themselves and, and probably not of God as we think of God, but there is a sense of worshipfulness that comes out of their music that is just incredible, truly is incredible. Well, you've researched and written a lot about a second century theologian and apologist named Irenaeus of Lyon, and before we look specifically at him— What changed? Let's think about apologetics. Let's think about the defense of the faith from the first century when the New Testament is written— into the second century when Irenaeus was around. And so, a lot of our listeners, they probably aren't real familiar with what happened in the second century of the things that were going on in the early church. They know that there was a New Testament, and then sometime later came Martin Luther, and then came Billy Graham. That's kind of their reference points right there. (laughs) And so, for those listeners that maybe aren't as into church history as you and I, Let's think about what happened from the 1st century when the New Testament is written to the 2nd century when Irenaeus is around defending the faith. What happened between there that really the changed in the world and about the way people did apologetics and the way people were needing to defend the faith? What was going on at that
2: time? That's a great question and one of the thing's I love to do in my church history 1 class is as, as you talk about the closing of the New Testament the, at the end of the first century, and then you start to look at the writings, the Christian writings that were circulating, of course, you have the Apostolic Fathers. Many of the Apostolic Fathers texts look very similar to the texts of the New Testament, letters and epistles and that sort of thing. But then the first writings that we get are these apologetic writings. And I love pointing out to students because most of them have never, ever heard of any of the apologists of the second century, or at least have very little experience— And most of them have heard of a lot of contemporary apologists. And I love pointing out to them that the apologetic tradition of the church is actually very old. And the defense of the faith is something that happens from the very beginning. So the climate and the culture of the second century, as the church is born, as the church receives the apostolic teaching, the apostolic testimony, as the church is living out its faith within a pagan Roman world— There is a natural gravity towards a defense of the faith. So writings begin to circulate and develop, and the objective of many of these writings are similar to the objective of apologetic writings today. It is to equip and encourage and challenge faithful members of the church to defend the faith over and against their Roman friends, those who they're working with, those who they're living with, those who they're interacting with on a daily basis.
0: I think it's so interesting that some of the earliest forms of this are defenses of what we would call in our terms religious liberty, although that's a little bit anachronistic,
2: but it's still the idea of a freedom to be able to
0: practice their religious faith.
2: In fact, the new new book by Wilkin that just came out on the history of religious liberty points back to Tertullian and Lactantius as the precursors of the more formal that you just Mm -hmm. described – Religious liberty that's that's being described or inarticulated and defended in a modern period.
0: Yeah, things like religious liberty and even in human dignity, the intrinsic human dignity are such distinctly Christian phenomena in their origins. They really are in so many different ways. Well, the primary theological foes, the enemies, so to speak, that Irenaeus faced, they are often known as the Gnostics, although they didn't call themselves that. That's not what they were known as in that day. But we know them looking back, or we refer to them looking back as the Gnostics. Now— that's something that many people have heard the term Gnostics, and they've heard of Gnostics and Gnosticism, but a lot of people haven't the foggiest idea what that is, or it's a very vague idea that's as much shaped by Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code as it is by church history. So could you just help us understand, help our listeners understand What were the Gnostics, and what do people even mean when they're talking about Gnosticism?
2: The challenge we face today really is a direct result of some events that have happened in the 20th century. 1945, we discovered the Nagamati Library, I know that you're familiar with, and and we discovered these Gnostic texts, and scholars now recognize that, as they describe, we can read the Gnostics on their own terms, and we can actually read their writings. Of course, Irenaeus mentions many of these texts, and describes, even at the beginning of Against Heresies, he describes how he's read some of these. He's interacted with them. He's encountered them. He knows people. He describes how people in his congregation in Lyon there have encountered them and actually been converted out of a Gnosticism. So, it is too difficult today, though. And to a certain degree, scholars point out that it's very hard to define Gnosticism, as you mentioned, putting one label. But you know, Irenaeus doesn't actually group everyone into one concurrent group. If you work through book one of his massive five volumes, that can overwhelm students. It really can. When you when you start you start to read against heresies, it's easy to get lost. But the the first book is essentially a catalog of the heresies. And notice he doesn't always group them into one group. Instead, he locates a thinker. He locates the beginning of a tradition and then begins to explain point by point what that tradition believed. And so if you read through Book One, it's like a catalog, and there's Valentinians, and there's a whole host of them. Now, I think it is possible, although it's not very popular, but I think it's possible to group the Gnostics generally— into some basic assumptions, and those basic assumptions include a distant otherworldly supreme god, it includes some kind of grouping of emanations coming from that distant god, it includes a recognition or some kind of a rebellion of a lower god through which a demiurge is created who then creates the material world, and then all matter is essentially as evil or viewed with suspicion." A divine spark, somehow an element of the Pleroma above becomes encased in the human person, like the special you inside you, the real you inside you, not the body, is not you. And then salvation, of course, is the knowledge of that divine spark in you that is to be released ultimately and float back up to the heavenly realms and all as well. And in general, that's what we can say is the Gnostic myth. Now, the point is, and Irenaeus points this out as other second-century fathers, what is ultimately the fruit that flows from that? And that is a devaluation of the body, a rejection of the material world, a denial of the goodness of creation as the good work of God, and a reading of Scripture in which the Old Testament God is usually cast as an ignorant, stupid God doing things that are evil. And so, that in essence, if we can capture all of those streams, would sort of provide an umbrella to make sense of all the different things of Gnosticism. Of course, Irenaeus complains that every time he turns around, there's a new one that springs up like mushrooms. That's the the image he uses. They're just, they keep popping up. And so, there's this, even he feels the struggle of how do I define these things? How do I characterize these things. But in general, that's what I would I would say, how we define kind of generally what Gnosticism is. Now, when Irenaeus is responding to Gnosticism,
0: there's this boldness. I mean, he has this, this boldness in the way he does that. I think of at one point where he says that not everybody will understand what the Gnostics are saying because not everybody has emptied their brains. <laughs> he says things <laughs> like that. There's this boldness, kind of a hubris yeah. at times. Yeah. And at the same time, even though there is this occasional hubris in, in Irenaeus, there's also a humility about him as well. You see, in the early parts of Adversus Heraces and, and Against Heresies, he in that recognizes that there is a distinct limit to what we can know. And for Irenaeus, Christians recognize that limit. And one of the problems with not with Gnosticism is he says you don't recognize this limitation to what we can know. So, how should that shape our apologetics today, this humility, and kind of talk a little bit more about this, this humility of Irenaeus, and and how should that affect us today in the way we do apologetics?
2: When you read his writings, and a lot of times you can encounter the second century fathers, it can almost feel like, I wonder what it would be like if they had a Twitter feed, <laughs> because there is a boldness to what they say, and a couple things. One, first and foremost, what is driving him is there is a pastoral concern. In fact, he says at the beginning, one of his major reasons for even sitting down is writing is for his congregation. And Adversus Erasis is probably sent back to Asia Minor, maybe being used by pastors, read by pastors that are going to be able to understand Gnosticism and respond to it appropriately. So there is a pastoral concern. At the same time, he is clearly trained in the modes of ancient rhetoric which is a distinctive—it provides him sort of categories through which he, Tertullian, others speak. We are often not familiar with the ways that rhetorical discourse is going on, so he uses rhetoric in certain ways, and sometimes it's parodying their accounts, or sometimes it's poking fun at what— and those are all sort of strategies of ancient rhetoric that are meant to persuade— Sometimes in our apologetics, we rely so heavy on logic that we forget the art of persuasion, the art of persuading someone. And the Second Century Fathers remind me of the, the importance of just presenting arguments in ways that can be very persuasive. The second part of that question is there's, there's a section of Book 2, 25 to, to 28, that's traditionally called Irenaeus' Tractate on Theological Method and it begins exactly as you said with an epistemological humility and he does he he talks about general revelation natural revelation but his point is that the gnostics are often spending more times on speculative things that are found either in nature or in the spiritual realm not on clear revelation that has been given in the scriptures and so he advocates dedicating yourself to what the clear revelation. Not saying general revelation is bad, but it's saying it is unclear, and it is by the scriptures that we come to a clear knowledge of the truth. An interesting point along this lines, he even admits humility in terms of the scriptures. So not all scriptures are equally clear. Some scriptures have more clarity. So, for example, the parables need other scriptures to clarify them or there's portions of the old testament. And so Irenaeus posits sort of the humble approach scripture ought to interpret scripture, but clear passages ought to interpret unclear. And by that you can build a first principle, you can build a rule of faith, you can build a basic theological conviction that will then guide you as you encounter other revelations. So there is this basis, this humility from which he from which he begins.
0: Well, one of my favorite parts in Adversus Heresis is Irenaeus's parody of Gnosticism in which he draws from some of the rhetorical tools that he has. And he has these different rhetorical tools and one of them is this sort of parody of Gnosticism. And so he basically says you Gnostics, you're just making up random names for stuff. You're just making stuff up. You're just making up a bunch of random <laughs> yeah. names. So yeah. if you can make up random names for all of your different emanations, etc. I can do the same thing. And so he ends up culminating this toward the end of this section he says, behold, there are these four powers, the gourd, the hollowness, the cucumber, and the pumpkin, and these four have begotten together a crowd of the most delirious pumpkins. <laughs> just,
3: like, it's crazy. Yeah. It's just,
0: that's what he actually says. So, in this theological work, he does this, this parody right here. And the first thing that comes to my mind is I think of the Halloween special that used to come about with <laughs> Charlie Brown. Yep. Uh, it's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, and Linus is out there in the pumpkin patch waiting for the Great Pumpkin to arise and bring toys to all the good children. Now we know where the pumpkin came from. That's <laughs> it's right. a Gnostic emanation. That's right. from Irenaeus. That's
2: right. Hey,
1: aren't you going to wait and greet the Great Pumpkin? Huh? It won't be long now. If the great pumpkin comes, I'll still put in a good word for you. Good grief. I said if. I meant when he comes. I'm doomed. One little slip like that can cause a great pumpkin to pass you by.
0: Yes, I think about that, as I read that, as I laugh over that, one of the things I also think about is... What is the proper place of parody and satire in apologetics? We have to think about that. What is it?
2: What do you see in that? It's a great question. So, a couple things. To point out what he is doing there, and that is, you know, I love the way he describes – he describes the Gnostic myth in general as they have all the right words, but they don't have the right melody, They have the right words, but not the right melody. In other words, the Gnostic is going around handpicking biblical names, biblical terms, divesting them of their Christian sense and importing upon those names a Gnostic sense and conforming those to the Gnostic myth. But Irenaeus' point is that the name Jesus has a content in the Christian faith that it doesn't have. It doesn't actually mean the incarnate Christ. And so that's the parody. He's laughing. He said, well, if I can make up names, if we're just making up names, why don't we just make up all these sorts of names? And so that gets again back to that sort of persuasion, because it it entertains the audience, and it reminds you of the silliness of the Gnostic system. I can remember reading Against Heresies with some PhD students several years ago, and we got to that section, and they just started laughing, because you read it, and it's the natural reaction to it, and I remember some of them thinking, I never thought I'd read read about pumpkins in the middle of a PhD seminar. <laughs> and here we are talking about pumpkins and gourds and cucumbers. And he does the same thing with when the Gnostics describe the creation of water, the way Sophia has created water. He starts laughing and he says, they talk about the water has come from her, her tears. And he starts giving kind of a parody or, or, or starts asking questions. Now, is it salt water that has come from her tears or is it fresh water that have come from his tears? What about ice? Where is that? You know, there, there's all these kinds of, of parody. And so, I do wonder today, I mean, it's a question worth asking, in the rise of social media, how has parody and satire and one of the larger questions, I think, for us is, what is good parody in apologetics and bad and bad parody? Parody that communicates truth, that dissects the incongruities within your opponent's position to be able to then put forward your constructive thought. Irenaeus, of course, is studying ancient rhetoric, and so he's driving all these things from, from the rhetoricians in his Greco-Roman Roman context. So I think, on the whole, that there is something we can learn from that use of parody, because I think we're seeing it more and more and more today, even with the use of Twitter, even with the use of social media, I would want to be the one thing I think he tries to do is to accurately describe what they're doing and point out the inconsistencies in it. And that would, of course, generate the uh, the laughter from the audience. I, I think in Irenaeus, and I've wrestled with this a lot because I look at 1 Peter chapter
0: three, that we are to be in the way we engage with people, we're to be doing it with meekness, with gentleness, and and how how to balance those yeah. those two on that because Irenaeus is he being meek and gentle or not at that point wrestling with it, and one of the things that I've come to the conclusion of, and this is just sort of one of those things of I don't think I've figured it out yet, but I but I think I've, that there's some helpful things. One of them is. That I think in Irenaeus, one of the things you clearly see, he is never attacking or mocking a person or even an individual's ideas. It is a set of ideas that are held by a group of people, and he never mocks those as individuals, but rather he attacks their ideas with it. And I think the difference— That we we need to make sure we practice as Christians from what often the world does is not mocking the person or the individual's ideas, but taking these ideas that are shared, that are incongruous with reality, and attacking those in that way. I think that's what Irenaeus is doing in this. But that's something I've just wrestled with a lot that I think we all do.
2: I mean, I think along those lines, one of the challenges facing in the second century, too, as he is living in… Of course, the second century is the, is the great high point of the Roman Empire. I mean, this is—and the church is still small. They're still on the fringes of the culture. And so, some of his arguments are from below. He's trying to create a space in which the church can serve and live. And along these lines, to your point, is one of the great challenges the early church faced is trying to, in all of their doings, maintain a faithful commitment to Christian ethics. There is an apologetic of ethics. It's not just the logic that one puts forward, but the way of life within a culture in which you're living on the fringes your life as testimony, your life as witness of a Christian ethic is as important as anything. And to your point, perhaps they don't always, and others don't always live up to maintaining that tension of rhetorical discourse modeled by a life of Christian witness. But that's always put forward. Look at the fruit of what Gnostic produces. The Gnostics were licentious, by description, they were licentious, or they were extreme ascetics, or they, they rejected the body. And look at the, the, the fruit of that theology. And then Irenaeus says, look at the, look at the church, look at the faithful Christian. In the second century, the fathers are doing the same. We are trying to maintain to that ethic that the New Testament puts forward and that the apostles put forward.
0: Yeah, you see that that ethical apologetic is probably the dominant, if you could choose one theme that is in almost every second century apologist, it is the Christian ethic as apologetic, as a defense. I think about in Athenagoras in his embassy— when he defends the Christians against those three stock charges of atheism, incest, and cannibalism. So, he, he defends the Christians against those. The way he defends it, when he defends against cannibalism, in which they were being accused of eating infants is what they were yeah, being yeah. accused of. And the way Athenagoras actually argues against it is not the way we might. He says, look, you all know that we don't participate in abortions. You all know that we don't expose our children and kill them. He says, you know that we don't do that. You all do that. You participate in abortions. You, if you don't want one of your children, you expose them, set them outside the, the borders of the town and just let them be picked up by slave traffickers or starve or die in some other way. You do that. We don't even do that. Now, he, and then he says, if we don't even kill our children when they're in the womb – why would we kill and eat our children afterwards? Yeah. And, yeah. and that's an ethical argument. It is. And it's an ethical argument that requires that the Romans knew that Christians didn't participate in certain practices. His argument against that charge is through and through a fully and completely ethical argument and you see that in Irenaeus against the Gnostics when he's speaking of look what is the fruit of this the fruit of of our life is this is is this godly life that is good for society even And the fruit of your life is one that is not good for society, is one that is an embarrassment, should be an embarrassment to you, is certainly an embarrassment to everybody else. It's just fascinating that there's this dominant theme throughout the second century that Christians are better people and not only are they better people but their goodness is good for the world it's good for the flourishing of the world
2: that's a beautiful argument it is. and it connects with the the comment on aesthetics the christian life is more beautiful it is the ethic of caring for the poor, of loving your neighbor, of humble devotion to God, and obviously by no means reading between the lines and looking at at the lives do Christians of the second century achieve full sanctification? No, I mean, but they're like us, but there there still is that argument put forward exactly as you as you described. <laughs>
0: Well, speaking of cultural engagement and what Irenaeus would do in cultural engagement, let's think about that for a moment. Let's suppose for a moment that just like happened with Socrates, or as they said, Socrates, in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, we were to go back in time and we were to get Irenaeus and bring him to the present time. And we were to put Irenaeus at at a U2 concert. Let's just suppose we go and we take Irenaeus to see you How would Irenaeus respond to what he sees in that and his experience of <laughs> rock and roll and of all of those things? What would
2: Irenaeus this, do? This is a great question. <laughs> Part of me wonders if he starts to see the gladiatorial games at that play. The other half, I no doubt, I, uh, sometimes in my Church History 1 class, if we have time, as I'm talking about sort of the eschatological hope, I think— If as long as they play, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And they'll play, you know, you broke the bonds, you used to change, you carried the cross of my shame. You know, I believe it. I believe in the kingdom come, all the colors will they bleed into one. Irenaeus' love of eschatology and the hope of a kingdom that is to come, a world that is to come, a resurrected body and a new kingdom. I have to think he would be. He would definitely be singing along. He'd definitely be singing along to 40 when they were describing being lifted up out of the miry clay.
0: With his recognition and his love of just recognizing the beauty of the natural world, of the body, of all of those things, I think he would. He would appreciate. There were certain things that he probably wouldn't, but I think there's things that he would appreciate. I suspect that he would resonate far more with U2's Joshua Tree days than with their Octoon Baby yeah, yeah, days. Probably. I think he would probably be distinctly uh-huh. turned off by the Octune Baby <laughs> era at that point, yeah. <laughs> certainly by the pop era yep. uh, of U2. But I, I think that all that you can't leave behind— Yeah.
2: He, he How to would dismantle have... atomic bomb, baby. Exactly. I think he, they're, uh, they're returning to those exactly. Joshua Tree days. Exactly, yeah. yep. exactly, exactly.
0: Well, are, are there any trends that you see in apologetics today that you would say Irenaeus needs to speak to that or to say to certain apologists, you need to listen to Irenaeus on this particular point? What are trends or things that you see in apologetics today that, that you think we need Irenaeus right there? What are some of those? That's
2: a, it's a good. I, I think one of the ways forward— And this is what I emphasize in a lot of my courses here, and it's something that has characterized my own sort of theological journey and theological development, is sometimes the way forward is the way back. Sometimes looking back is helpful in moving forward. And so... I think as we move into a postmodern culture, as we move into a culture in which modernity is no longer, perhaps has the the anchor holds, that perhaps cultivating new ways of defending the faith are the trends moving forward. And I think it's helpful to go back not only to the 2nd century, but to begin to look even into the 3rd century. Origins against Celsus is a great example. Or, you know, Augustine's City of God, the whole first 10 chapters are dedicated to, again, critiquing paganism. And so there is a, that, that fountain of apologetic tradition, of course, going back to the scholastics as well, and that trend moving forward. But I think one of the things to do is to look at the whole beautiful breadth of the Christian apologetic tradition and to begin to learn from and perhaps even incorporate and think through ways that we could sift the wheat and the tares out from the apologetic tradition and what might be helpful and useful for today. So I think the first step is to go back and to read and recover.
0: It's time for Toy Box Hero, that moment in the program when Garrick and I take toys from our children sometimes as they're wandering around the room with the toys in their hand and we grab them from them, resulting in much consternation and many tears, but usually we actually ask their permission before taking their toys and putting them into combat against one another. But this time, the children have chosen the toys and they are putting them into combat against one another, my third child against Garrick's second child, and my third child is going to describe for you exactly what she has brought to the battle today.
1: This is Daisy Johnson. Her shared name is Sky, and her other name is Quake. Her superpower is that she can, so she kneels on the ground and she makes earthquakes. Her hair is purple, dark purple on the top, and brighter purple on the bottom. She has a gray outfit and purple bluish leggings with gray on it and gray shoes. And I think she has makeup on.
0: So what has been brought into battle from my third child is Quake. Quake. Quake is a superhero. Quake is able to make earthquakes, and Quake is able to use these superpowers even to fly in the air. But the main thing she can do is under any circumstances, whatever she, whatever's happening, she can make the ground shake. She can make things shake. And so this is
1: Quake who makes things shake. <laughs> yes. Quake it, but don't break it. So, where is Quake from? Is this is it- Quake is from Agents of Shield?
0: So I this is not- Daisy Johnson. Quake oh, from yeah, Agents yeah. of Shield, and so then um, our third child has not watched Agents of Shield, but they have a, a series of cartoons with some okay. of the female characters in Marvel and this is her favorite one with All the right. purple tights on and the black and purple outfit and these silver gloves and so it's sort of a kids version of Daisy Johnson from the
1: Agents of Shield. I never really got past like season 2 so there's probably a lot a lot of stuff about agents that I don't know about. So okay, well yeah, this is here we go. This is a challenge. Eli picked his latest his latest acquisition from the toy store. He has a fascination with miniguns. I hope that he is never able to buy a real one for himself because he will. So he brought his latest and greatest Nerf gun, automated minigun, which I don't have loaded, but it is automated, right? I squeeze a trigger and then, right? See this that, magazine? That
0: is, do you see this? That, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, it, it really is. <laughs> they...
1: I didn't have anything like this when I was a child. No, I no. used sticks. Right, but I like, would have gotten carved in a lot wooden... more trouble if I'd had one yes. of those. As a kid. <laughs> I think. I think like the most dangerous gun I had was the wooden block guns they have, where you put rubber bands on with uh, mm-hmm. like clothespins, and that's that's about as that's I about as a dangerous gun. Like
0: that. I had a oh, dart gun,
1: and then wow. I I did
0: something with it, and my mom <laughs> broke the darts. There you go. Yep. I don't remember what I did, but I probably
1: deserved the the darts. Imagine broken. what would have happened if you had one of these bad boys. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, um, yeah. Oh, so man, this is this is difficult. Yeah,
0: because we have to imagine, we that have to those imagine are real,
1: yes, yes. That those
0: are real slugs, just yes. like we have to imagine that Daisy Johnson exactly. actually has these powers. So, yeah. someone with this type of a Gatling gun, mm-hmm. we might say, yeah. up against. Somebody who can make the earth
1: shake. Now, if I were shooting this minigun from a helicopter, that would be different. I'd feel better about that. I'd feel better about that. But it's certainly, I mean, you, yeah, you'd have to get a lucky shot in. I mean, if you do, you you win, but it's not like that can't be an easy thing. So, listeners, what do you think? <laughs> That's uh,
0: right. I we, mean, I'm actually – I'm stuck on this. I really think that – let's think – I've tried to think of different times we've seen Daisy Johnson being shot at. Obviously, she hasn't died yet, but that doesn't mean she couldn't.
1: Yeah. I mean, they're not going to kill her off in the show. Uh, not you know? on I the mean, show. On.
0: She's not. I mean, <laughs> and then they're going to bring her back as a life model decoy, but you didn't get that far into Agents no. of S.H.I.E.L.D. Mm-mm. So, anyway, no, so you're not, not at that point. So, man – Yeah, I'm I'm trying to think of one decisive thing. So, you got somebody shooting at her with this Gatling gun. She's shaking the ground that person is shooting from. Uh But at the same time, there's a lot of bullets flying around. And uh, there's not much she can do against all those bullets. So, we got to turn this over to listeners and say, listeners, you got to tell us who would win on this because we really don't know. We think that our children have both chosen some pretty amazing things. I mean, this isn't like Walter the Duck, uh, who we had to just give a special (laughs) dispensation for Walter the Duck. This is something where this, we're talking real, real firepower on both sides
1: right here. It's like legitimate draw, right? This is legitimate draw. Not a, hey, these are, these two things are too sweet and nice to really truly do battle. Like, but this is, I don't know. These are two weapons of mass destruction and I'm not sure. This is very violent on both sides. That's right. That's right.
0: Listeners, let us know. Gatling gun against Daisy Johnson, who has this power as an inhuman of shaking the earth. Let us know who won.
1: I'm Garrick, and our friend Josh Chateau is with us again today. Josh is executive director of the Center for Public Christianity and author of several of our favorite apologetics books. And I'm Timothy.
0: And a few of the books that Josh has authored or edited include Apologetics at the Cross, History of Apologetics, and Telling a Better Story. Now, the last time Josh was on this program, he almost got himself permanently (laughs) kicked (laughs) off of the program because he mentioned Kenny G, perhaps not knowing that Kenny G is my most despised musician in the world, but he redeemed himself. He redeemed himself by a reference to the Dave Matthews Band, which has stellar guitar playing that is often just overlooked. And so he did redeem himself. So I'm going to ask Josh a question right now to help in his redemption of himself. We are all about salvation by grace when it comes to getting to heaven, but we are all about redemption by works when it comes to this program. And so the question is this, if Augustine of Hippo played in a rock band, what band would it be and what would Augustine be doing? (laughs) Oh, God.
3: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I might say he would play in a Blues band oh. uh, Yeah I mean I would say Blues band And maybe he'd be on the Saxophone <laughs>
1: i automatically had to think that he would be in petra who actually (laughs) did a song called augustine's pears it was about augustine and the thing of the pears and so that was pretty sweet
3: you might need to make a distinction between the young Augustine and the old Augustine. Mm. And I, I think that there's a bit more realism in the old Augustine after having, I mean, maybe some naivety. So I don't know how that, in the early Augustine about life, so I don't know how that would play out. He would have
1: been in country music, like grassroots country music later on in life. He would have been Willie Nelson. Yes. So there you go. Yes. I, I could just see Absolutely. him being Willie Nelson,
0: but with without the weed. Deep in the soul
2: God's problem child.
0: so we've got this slide here from Augustine I looked for something to love and lover of loving that I was but Augustine he he does have this strong sense of of yearning of longing of love in his writing that is, lyrical in some sense. And and I can see the connection there between that and the blues. And you've mentioned in several places in different parts of your writings, the impact of Augustine of Hippo on your apologetics. And so we've already talked quite a bit about Augustine. And so who was Augustine and why did he influence you? Why do you see Augustine as somebody that ought to influence our apologetics today? And, And who was this man? Why should he influence our apologetics today? And why has he influenced you
3: one reason what you see in augustine is you see a man in what we might call pre-christianity i mean the christianity has just kind of taken root but he's he's still in this kind of he's a pastor in the in the early church before christendom and for instance in confessions he's actually in the first part of the book and most of the book what he's doing is you see augustine and he's telling his story, and part of his story is how he's tried on these different ways to live, these different kind of philosophies of life. And in each one, he shows how he wasn't actually fulfilled, or it didn't make—he saw intellectual problems or existential problems. And one of the things I see Augustine doing in Confessions as he looks back on his own life is he's, he's, he's actually communicating some of the cross-pressures— that he was feeling being in a society that was certainly had at least partially embraced Christianity, but you still had all of these other, what I would call live options in a way that I think mirrors in, in certain ways, our context today. So sometimes people are looking for to retrieve a certain apologist or a kind of hero in apologetics, and they'll return to somebody maybe who's ministering within Christendom, and they don't have the same type of, Again, I'm using this phrase cross-pressures that the contemporary philosopher Charles Taylor uses about living in a post-Christian society or a secular society. And I think when we return to Augustine, you get somebody who's experiencing something like, in, in and granted, in a different way, but still with some parallels for us today. And with Augustine, not only kind of his his context, the general context, but he was a pastor who had his feet on the ground. And so, as he's writing, perhaps his greatest work, Confessions and City of God, as he's writing, for instance, City of God, he's responding as a pastor to live situations that are going around, that they're going on. And really, you have unbelievers offering these objections, and he's seeing them really having an effect on his own congregation. And so it's not just an academic effort to try to get tenure or something. Here's, here's a man who's, who's trying to save souls, and he sees the kind of what's on the line with what he's doing. And then, as you've already mentioned, I mean, his theology, particularly his theological anthropology, that yes, we are in some sense rational beings, and Augustine doesn't deny that, but he wants to get at what's really driving us. And in doing that, he, he recognized that that we're loving beings. And I think one of the things you see, for instance, in confessions is he sees the power of story and how that's tied into how God made us as, as loving beings. So there's a theological element, but then there's also the contextual part of the surrounding culture that he was ministering in and then his particular vocational calling, that's all those three things have attracted me to Augustine.
1: Yeah, you mentioned story in confessions. At one point in one of your recent books, Telling a Better Story, you write, one way to read this book is as an entry-level retrieval of the apologetic insights of the later Augustine, ministering before the advent of Christendom within his own cross-pressured culture. And I was wondering if you could if you could tell us more about how Augustine kind of specifically shaped this work, this book, or maybe even maybe even inspired it.
3: Yeah. Well, if you look at what what Augustine's doing at a, at a macro level in a book like City of God, particularly City of God, what he's doing is he is the first 10 books, well, okay, so what we normally think of as chapters today, he calls books. So books, City of God is made up of 22 books, and the first 10 books, he is offering an imminent critique of kind of the dominant philosophical life systems of the day. And so what I mean by imminent critique is he's stepping into their worldviews or into their kind of stories, how they understand the world and he is critiquing it from the inside so to speak but as he's doing it he's doing it in a way that says hey okay you have something here that makes sense but that doesn't cohere with with this and so he he's not just objecting to it all he's recognizing that he can at times plunder from these pagan philosophers he can actually use things and affirm certain things and at the same time, he wants to critique them on a number of different levels. And then, books eleven through twenty-two of the City of God, there's this dramatic kind of change in what he's doing. Whereas scholars have actually counted the amount of references to kind of the cultural narratives of the day in the first half, the kind of pagan philosophers and the the leading thinkers that that the Romans are going to in their arguments, and it's just full of those. <laughs> but in the second half in 11 through 22 he's primarily using the bible and he's actually giving a kind of narrative of the christian story and as he's doing it he's handling objections as he goes but he's saying this is this true story of reality and so what what i see in city of god at a macro level he's doing a lot of things in that book but at a macro level I see something along the lines that we've called inside out. And I think there's probably various reasons that we could pontificate on, on on why people haven't picked this up and developed it into a model for people today. But for whatever the case, I haven't really seen it done. But I, I think in some sense, there's a correspondence between this inside-out approach that we've developed in City of God. I'll also just say, for folks who are interested, I think that there's actually a somewhat similar structure in Confessions. There's different ways to kind of see what he's doing in Confessions, of course, but where he's trying on these different stories. And then in books 10 through 13 in Confessions, he's actually kind of tracing out the implications of the gospel story. And Scholars debate what he's doing at the end of Confessions, and it kind of doesn't seem to fit, but I think that's what he's doing. That's my personal opinion, is that is he's he's kind of reached the Christian story, and now he wants to apply and, and make reflections on it. And so I do see a connection between his two greatest works as far as structure, and both in different ways, and more ways than I've just described, I would say, inspired telling a better story and, and some of what I'm doing there.
1: I think we can all agree though that Augustine's favorite rock song would be We Built This City. <laughs> I mean, there's just no way that it wouldn't be. <laughs> that that definitely wins. <laughs>
0: I, I did not I had not thought of that connection. But yes, I we mean, built this on. city. And if we really want to push this, we built this city on the rock. That's right. Uh, the the rock. rock of Jesus. The rock. We built it on there. Let's Jesus juke the whole thing yeah. for Starship. Yep. There.
1: Josh, what are you, so I feel like you've put out about seven books in the last year. They just continued just to show up on my doorstep, and I've been thankful for all of them. But what are you, what writing projects are you working on right now?
3: Mark Allen and I are working on Augustinian Apologetics. This is all fresh for me right now, and with Baker Academic, we see how Augustine, I think, can help move us forward. It's a retrieval of Augustine in that you know, there's so much Augustine, in their knees, <laughs> and there's there's development in Augustine. So, but we're trying to retrieve Augustine for today, and we think because of his context, there's some some really things we can learn. And really, as I've talked to you guys about some, I think some of the methodological debates have grown a little tiring to me and stale. And I think people need new categories. And as I've talked about this book. There's a lot of people who get excited about okay, let's move forward. And I think Augustine can also be a rallying point if, we, if if we do this right. He can be a rallying point for people in different traditions that hopefully will resonate and see see an opportunity here with an Augustine retrieval. That's what I'm working on now. There's there's some other books that are contracted or maybe in process on, but but I have I'm not really working on those. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the process of thinking about them you know that's what we do when when we write books we think about a book and if we get overly ambitious we we actually do an outline and a contract maybe happens but we're focused on Augustine there's a there's a lot of a lot of material there to work through
0: Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. And thank you so much to B&H Academic for their sponsorship. Go to bhacademic.com to find more theology and more apologetics resources. And also, if you're interested in studying apologetics with me, I want to invite you to take a look at the apologetics programs at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Whether you're thinking about a master's degree or a doctoral degree on campus or online, I would be so glad to have you as a guest at our next next preview day. To register, go to sbts.edu slash visit. And also, if you're interested in a podcast that's focused on ministry in urban contexts, go to urban.sbts.edu. That's urban.sbts.edu to listen to the Urban Ministry Podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm already looking forward to joining you next time on Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast.
3: I, I need more time for questions like this. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, sanctification yeah. is you know it's an ongoing process. It's slow. And it's so, slow. <laughs> it's okay. Everything
1: in between, uh, Timothy will just cut out and edit. Anyway, yeah, we'll just so. cut out. <laughs> so, so,
3: so, go go ahead with whatever you come up with. Okay. Oh, uh, um, oh, oh, oh! Wh- tell me the question again. <laughs> Timothy.